I'd like us to look for a few moments this morning at uh, Psalm 20 in the book of Psalms. And if you have a Bible, I would invite you to open it uh, at uh, Psalm 20. It's a short psalm and we'll read it all, although I'll focus on one particular part of it. Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. We will shout for joy when you are victorious and will lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He answers him from his holy heaven with the saving power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are, brought to the, uh, they are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. O Lord, save the king. Answer us when we call. I'd like to think with you this morning particularly about the implications of the words in verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, this psalm, like uh, over half of the psalms in the book of Psalms, is entitled A Psalm of David. Now, it is absolutely certain that David wrote uh, many psalms, but we can't be absolutely certain that he wrote all the psalms that have his name at the top, because the Hebrew, which we have translated uh, a psalm of David, literally is a psalm to David or a psalm for David. And uh, some of these psalms may be uh, dedications rather than ascriptions. Uh, And it may be that this psalm, which is a psalm for the king, was a psalm which was written for David. And it may be that uh, we should translate the the inscription of the psalm here as a psalm for David. Uh, In verse 9, the psalm says, Give victory, uh, O Lord, save the king. Or more, uh, we could also translate that, O Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. Now, this psalm raises the whole question about the nature of secular power. We live in a world where power is a very important thing. Power of individuals, but above all, power of nations, uh, power of lobbies, uh, and so on. A Canadian commentator writing on this psalm uh, says that this verse, that's verse 7, contains what may be the most profound biblical revelation concerning power. Now, the immediate context of this psalm was military power. The reference to horses and chariots was a reference to the equivalent of uh, tanks uh, in the ancient world. And this psalm was probably written on the eve of a great battle in which uh, David would have been involved. And it is, a, it, is a, it is not simply a prayer, it is also a confession of faith, an expression of trust in a superior power. Now, of course, secular power <coughs> takes uh, <coughs> many more forms than military. 
There's also political power, there's economic power, there's media power, there's even ecclesiastical power. And this psalm, along with the two other psalms, provides a biblical lens which helps us to, to evaluate uh, power as it is brokered in the world in which we live uh, uh, today. And I just want to, uh, in addition to quoting verse 7, to quote uh, two other references in the book of Psalms. First of all, in chapter uh, Psalm 33, uh, verses 16. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great, great strength, it cannot save. And then in Psalm 147, uh, which we sung earlier in the service, verses uh, 10 and 11, uh, his pleasure, that is the Lord's pleasure, is not in the strength of the horse, nor is delight in the power of human legs. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Now, this psalm speaks to more than the horse and chariot age. It speaks indirectly to the world in which we live, a world of tanks, submarines, cruise missiles, stealth bombers, and so on. And the question this uh, psalm raises is whether the powers that be in our land are trusting in weaponry, for our national security, or are, they, or are they trusting in God? And the question, of course, is addressed not only to those in government, it is also addressed to us. In what do we trust for our national security? Are we trusting in God, or are we trusting in military power? The question, of course, for David and for the people of Israel was not an either-or. Uh, David was a great general. He, was a, he became well-known as, as a military uh, leader and as a military uh, strategist. It's a, uh, and this psalm is a prayer for victory in a real battle. But uh, I think the psalm challenges them and challenges us not simply to trust in human resources, but to trust in God. In his confrontation with Goliath, early in his career, David not only had faith, he went out with a sling and five smooth stones. And he said to Goliath these words, The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that, that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And so the challenge, I think, is to ask whether we are trusting in the means rather than that God has given us, rather than in God himself. The problem, of course, is that secular power, that is power in this world, becomes secularized power. In, uh, in the sense that it, uh, it, 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 God is ruled out, that God is marginalized. Remember what Alistair Campbell uh, famously or infamously said, that in 10 Downing Street we don't do prayer. 
And uh, this is, the, I think, the, 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 the feature of the secularized society in which we live today. James Packer, the well-known Anglican theologian now uh, resident in Canada for many years, uh, defines secularization as practicing the absence of God. And that's precisely what we find in many areas of society. Uh, we find it in national government, we find it in local government, we find it in industry. Uh, God is left outside. Now, this psalm is challenging that. This psalm is asking us to make God central. It's not asking us to dispense with, with, with means, uh, secular means, but it's asking us also, above all, to trust in the Lord. <clears throat> and so it asks us, at least it suggests, that we ask these questions about all forms of secular power, political power, uh, this is crucially important. It is crucially important that we bring our theology, our belief in God, uh, to bear on political power at a time, especially at this time when, the when, as a Scottish nation, we will face a referendum in independence. At this time when, in the United Kingdom, we struggle to find an appropriate political role in Europe, and indeed when Europe itself struggles to find a new economic and political identity, prayer is crucial in all of these uh, political developments. And prayer is not to be left outside. Prayer is not to be left in the vestibule. It's to be brought right into the heart of the debate. And so this psalm is a prayer, not only for David, but for every person who exercises authority uh, in society. One can say that it is a prayer for Alex Salmond. It is a prayer for David Cameron. It is a prayer for Angela Merkel. It is a prayer for Barack Obama. God has given this, has given this, this psalm as a prayer through, in which we might intercede with God on behalf of those who exercise power. The king did that in, 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 in the ancient world, but today... Power is much more democratized, but nevertheless, power is located in individuals and in uh, political blocks, and we are invited, we are indeed commanded, to pray for those who exercise that, this authority. John Calvin, the great reformer of Geneva, uh, spoke very highly of the office of the magistrate. Now, the magistrate for Calvin was what we would call a politician. And he said, this is one of the highest callings. And it's so easy for us today to succumb to the, 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 the popular view of the media that, you know, that politicians, that being a politician is a very low calling. But in fact, Calvin tells us that to be a politician is a very high calling. And in fact, Calvin, Calvin quotes from Paul in his letter to the Romans, chapter 13, where he speaks about uh, the powers of be is uh, the powers that be being the servants of God. They may not acknowledge that they were the servants of God. Certainly Nero did not, did not do that in Paul's day. But those who exercise authority do so not simply because they have won an election, but because God has overruled that election and placed them there. 
And that is the conviction that Calvin had. That was the conviction that he got from Paul. And that is the conviction of this psalm, that we pray for those in authority as those who have been given that authority to exercise as a trust from God. Now, Psalm 20 is asserting that there are transcendent moral and spiritual values. And this is tremendously important for all politicians to remember and all those who exercise any authority in society. It's also important for us to remember as we pray for them and as we seek to to, to help them. The whole question of transcendent uh, values is intensely uh, relevant concerning the current debate and the power of the media and and the uh, phone hacking scandal and the whole uh, question of unrestrained economic globalization uh, and rampant consumerism which so characterizes our Western society today. And we as Christians uh, are called upon to affirm that there are moral values and that there are eternal values, and that God's law is relevant, intensely relevant to all that is going on. And this psalm is a call to us to affirm the sovereignty of God in public life. So the psalm affirms that secular power in its multiple manifestation, manifestation, manifestation does not ultimately lie with the government or with politicians or with the media moguls or with the, with, the, with the investment bankers, the CEOs of multinational corporations. Ultimate power lies with God. And that's what this psalm is reminding us of. This psalm is reminding us that he is sovereign. The key phrase that you find right throughout the Psalter is the word, the Lord reigns. Now, very often the psalmist found it difficult to believe that when he looked out and saw the chaos in the world. But nevertheless, he affirmed it because he believed that's what the, he believed in God and he believed in a sovereign God. And as we look out in the world in which we live today, when we watch the news and television or read the newspapers, this psalm is challenging us to affirm that God is sovereign, that God has not lost control of history. That the, that the God is ultimately on the throne. And this is a key affirmation uh, here uh, in this psalm, as it is indeed in the book of Psalms. So this psalm indicates that we can speak to God about the distribution of secular power in the world. And therefore, we ought not to feel totally powerless when we read in the newspaper or watch on television some events that are taking place in different parts of the world. We have access to the throne of grace. And the throne of grace is the power center of the universe. And through Jesus, we have access to the throne of grace. And prayer does make a difference. That's what this psalm is saying, that prayer and power are intimately related So this is a call to prayer, to pray for those who are in authority, that they might exercise that authority in a way which will honor God and in a way which will benefit uh, uh, the human race. 
I mean, this was, uh, the, the, the power of prayer was brought home very, very strongly to me when a few years ago I met uh, a Christian leader from Mozambique. Uh, his name is Dennis Sengulani. He is the Anglican bishop of the Anglican Church in Mozambique. And he told me that on one occasion he was traveling throughout uh, his diocese and uh, uh, the plane, the flight he was due to get uh, from uh, the town he was in back to the capital was uh, the delay was canceled. The flight was canceled. And he went to, uh, back to the hotel that he'd been staying in and he sat in the lobby as he waited to get news as to when there might be another flight. And he was reading his Bible. And he was reading in the book of Psalms. And uh, he was seeing, you know, how David was affirming his faith in God. And then he discovered that it was a time, it was, well, it was a time, I should say, of the civil war in Mozambique about 15 years ago. Uh, and uh, there was the rebels called Renamo who were fighting against the government and they wanted to introduce some kind of uh, Marxist uh, or semi-Marxist uh, uh, state. And the, 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 the war had gone on for so long that, that that really the two sides were trying to come together, and they had various attempts to uh, find uh, a solution to the crisis. Uh, and he discovered that, uh, but all of these attempts had failed, but he discovered that in that very hotel in which he was sitting, their talks were taking place between the government and the Renamo leaders. And uh, he prayed for them. As he was reading, he was saying, told me he was reading in the book of Psalms. And then he saw the leader of Renamo leaving the talks. And the word had come out that the talks had again broken down. And uh, Dennis said to me, he said, there I was reading the Psalms. And I said, well, if God could do it for David, he can do it for me. And he realized he had 30 seconds and he stood up and he went across and intercepted the Renamo leader. And he quoted from the, the, from the Beatitudes, Blessed are the peacemakers. And the leader stopped in his tracks and said, Who said that? And Dennis said, Jesus Christ said it. And the man turned around and went back into negotiations. And peace uh, was found. Now, there is an example where the Word of God is relevant to issues when it's brought out of the church into the public square, when it's brought right into the heart of the debate. It fulfills a ministry of reconciliation. And so God's Word is relevant today. God's Word is not something to be shut up in the church. It's something to be brought out into the public sphere. And all of us are called to be ambassadors of the Word of God. And so this psalm, I believe, helps us, first of all, to analyze secular power. And it's so important that we, we do that, we re, that we don't think that we're just powerless, that we're spectators, that we're onlookers, and that we can do nothing about it. Prayer, as someone has said, can change the headlines in tomorrow's newspapers. And that's what this, the psalmist here believed. And that's what David believed. And prayer can indeed make a difference. But this psalm also, I believe, helps us to gain 
our perspective on history. It helps us to make sense of what is happening in the world. Today, many people are understandably confused as to where history may be going. Economic globalization is spreading a materialistic consumer culture around the world. And although it may be increasing uh, standards for some of the world's poor, the gap between the poor and the rich is rapidly getting wider. Our Western uh, media culture is promoting self-centered pleasure as the be-all and the end-all of life, resulting in the rejection of universal moral values and the erosion of self-discipline and the elevation of rights over responsibilities and principles. And many people are afraid that the glue that enables people to live together is in danger of, uh, of, of, of corroding. And many people wonder how long our Western culture can hold together. And this is a concern not only of Christians, it's a concern of many others. Some years ago I read uh, Eric Hobsbawm's uh, history of the 20th, 20th century. He called it an age of extremes. It was the last in a series of, of, of histories that he wrote. Now, Eric Hobsbawm uh, is a Marxist. And uh, he wrote that book uh, just after the Soviet empire had collapsed. And he said, the same thing can happen in the Western world. And the economic crisis which we are still in uh, has demonstrated just how fragile the, the structures that keep us together and enables life to work, uh, to, 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 to cooperate, work to, how fragile these structures are. So this psalm, I believe, helps us to get a perspective, helps us to see uh, you know, that God is on the throne, that God is in control. And it's not always easy to see that. Uh, for uh, 17 years, I was minister in the Free Church in Cumbernauld. And uh, Cumbernauld is uh, at the foot of the Campsie Hills. And occasionally we would climb the Campsie Hills, or more often drive up them, and uh, get a wonderful view. You could see Arran in one direction, you could see Stirling in the other and it was the only place where I've ever been able to see Glasgow and Stirling at the same time because there was elevation and I had the perspective. And it is when we come to the word of God and, and when we come to prayer, the throne of grace, that we can find perspective and we can see a, a broader panorama of life than we can see if we're, you know, down at lower levels. And so God gives us the opportunity to, to lift us up. And as we come to the throne of grace, we enter into his throne room. And from there, we can see things in a clearer perspective than we see uh, from elsewhere. And so this psalm, as many psalms, give, offers us a vantage point from which we can see human history in divine perspective, that is from God's point of view. I've mentioned Calvin uh, and his, uh, his, uh, his high regard for the magistrate or the politician. Let me quote him again. He speaks of the Bible as being spectacles that God has given to us to help us to see 
the world clearly and to see things from his point of view. And the Bible is in these spectacles, and this psalm is one example of that. And it helps us to, it, it helps us to see that God is ultimately in control, although we live in a world that is in rebellion against him. So this psalm is called a royal psalm. It's a psalm, like many of the psalms, which were either written by David or dedicated to him. And the extraordinary thing is that when the book of Psalms was put together, and that was probably by Ezra or someone about that time, after the exile from Babylon, there were no kings. The kings had gone. And yet these royal psalms were included in the, in, in the book of Psalms. Why was that if the kings had already gone? The kings were already, the, the Israel was no longer a, a monarchy. Well, the reason is that Israel came to believe that there would be a king with a capital K who would come. And these Psalms, which were written by David or dedicated to David, not only pointed to David, but pointed to another one who would come. David was known as the Lord's anointed. And these Psalms pointed to, not only to him and his successors, his immediate successors, but also to the one who would be his greater son, who would be the anointed with a capital A, who would be the Messiah, which is the, the, the Hebrew word for, for anointed. The Greek word is Christ. And so these Psalms pointed forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why these Psalms were kept, because there was this faith in Ezra and others that the Messiah would come, that the King of Kings would one day come. And of course, we celebrate at Christmas the coming of the King of Kings in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we can use this psalm, in some aspects of it at least, with reference to Jesus, especially verse 4, where the psalmist prays, may the Lord give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. Now, Jesus is praying for the world. He's doing that right now. He's doing that in the presence of God. And he invites us to join him. And our prayers are powerful only because they're offered through him. And he is praying for the world. And so we can pray that, that his desire for the world may indeed succeed, that his plans may indeed succeed. We can use this psalm not only with reference to David, not only with reference to political powers uh, today, but also with reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. The psalmist says in verse 6, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He answers him from his holy heaven and with the saving power of his right hand. And that is what gives us hope. It is not that we have ultimate hope in our human leaders, although we pray for them and we respect them and we support them. But ultimately, our hope is placed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, the King of Kings. Uh, he is the one who can make a difference, and He is the one uh, whose will. It shall be done. And his prayers are answered 
And it is because his prayers are answered that our prayers are answered. And it is, there's no virtue in your prayer or in my prayer in and of itself. But your prayer and my prayer is offered in the name of Jesus and rises to the throne of grace, invested in the prayer of Jesus. And so God hears us for his sake, and God answers us and our prayers for his sake. And when uh, we come to the last verse of the psalm, O Lord, save the king, that, the word save there could be equally translated, O Lord, give victory to the king. And uh, that may have been the original significance. The word to save and the word to give victory is basically the same word uh, in, in, in Hebrew. And uh, perhaps we should pray this, that last verse with reference to Jesus, to give victory to the king, to give the king victory today. We're praying today for the United States of America, praying for India, and uh, I think it's great that you're praying uh, right across the world through uh, the book Operation World. That's great. And that as you pray, you're praying that the King of Kings may gain the victory and that his will may may be done and that uh, his name may be glorified. And so this psalm, I believe, helps us to have this perspective, to help, to help us to see the world in the light of the intercession of Jesus, in the light of the sovereignty of God. Now, God has a, has, has, has a good purpose for the world. And so often, some people think, well, the world is, is rubbish. Well, the world, of course, is in rebellion against God, but the world is not rubbish. God has created the world, and he will recreate it. When the King of Kings comes again, the world will be recreated, and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. So God has a good purpose for the world, and God wants us to work for the good of the world. God wants us to work for his justice, for his compassion, for his love and for his mercy to be demonstrated in the societies in which we find ourselves. And so this psalm helps us not only to analyze secular power, it also helps us to gain a a perspective on history. But there's one third lesson I'd like to share with you, and that this psalm helps us to appreciate the persistence of religion. In 1960, uh, Peter Berger, a well-known American um, sociologist, wrote to the New York Times, I think it was, and said that uh, by the 1980s, religion would have disappeared. Now, Peter Berger has uh, lived to change his mind, and he will acknowledge today that, in fact, uh, religion is, uh, is, is, how does he put it, is, it's, it's practiced more vibrantly today than it was then. And this is what we see in the world today. There has been a a huge uh, uh, religious revival. Now, I speak about revival in the broadest sense of the term there. We see that although the churches in the Western world may be declining, the church in Africa, the church in Latin America, uh, the church in in many parts of Asia is, is growing. 
My wife and I were visiting our daughter who's uh, working for a year in Colegio San Andres in Lima in Peru. And she took us to a church one Sunday afternoon. We had to queue to get in. I mean, there was one service after another. We had to queue to get in. When we came out, there were about 20 taxis lined up waiting to take people home from church. Now, that is not uncommon in Latin America. God is working today throughout the world. And one of the fallacies, one of the tragedies of so many of our leaders today is that they think that religion is something you can put in a cupboard, that you can marginalize it. You can't do that. You can't do that. We think of China, how, how, how the church there is, is, is growing so dramatically. And we give God thanks for that. I read uh, recently um, Neil Ferguson's book on civilization, The West and the Rest. Now, he's writing as an atheist, but he says that China, the church in China, has got a huge contribution to make in the future. And he said he met uh, 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 academics in China who said, we need Christianity to combat corruption. And he, he says that, that, that the mantle of Calvin, the mantle of the reformers, is being, has fallen on some of these Chinese church leaders. And so there is, I mean, religion is not only persisting, it is flourishing in many parts of the world today. We are the odd person out here in the Western world. Now, not only is Christianity flourishing, you find there's been a revival of uh, Islam, for example. And one of the reasons that, 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 that Islam has become so militant against the West is that they believe that we are destroying religion or attempting to destroy religion. We are attempting to secularize life and to secularize the world. Now, this is not to say by any means that uh, to resort to terrorism is the way to, 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 to deal with that. Not at all. That is a false uh, approach. But I think it does illustrate how religion is there and it cannot be eliminated. Uh, a French writer about uh, 15, 20 years ago, uh, as religions, the religions of the world began to revive, wrote a book called The Revenge of God. And there he argues that uh, the dramatic growth of, especially of fundamentalism uh, in different religions, especially in Islam and in, also in Hinduism and Buddhism, is a reaction against the secularization of the West, the, the, the tendency to rule God out, not to do God, as, as Alistair Campbell would say. Now, you just can't by fiat dispense with God. And so we find that there is this reaction. And what, what is common about all of these religions, including uh, Christianity? And that is prayer. And that people uh, recognize that they need a power outside themselves. They're looking for a superior power, a supernatural power. Now, we believe that that power can be accessed through Jesus Christ and only through him. And that's why it's so important that the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed to the ends of the earth. 
that those who, who, who are seeking may indeed find what they are seeking in and through him. But this psalm, I think, illustrates the importance and the persistence of prayer and reminding us that man shall not live, cannot live by bread only, but needs every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So this psalm has a lot to say to us today. It is a psalm not only for David or for those who exercise authority, it is a psalm for you, it is a psalm for me. And it's a psalm that God has given to us not only to sing, but to pray. And uh, sometimes, you know, we, we, when, when we're reading the psalms, well, and David is being persecuted, and we say, well, what has this got to do with me? I'm not being persecuted. But many people are being persecuted. The situation in Egypt today is very, very difficult for the Christians, much worse than it was before the so-called Arab Spring. Much worse. Now, if you, if you may feel the psalm, the psalm of the psalms where David is praying for relief from his enemies may not be relevant to you. You can pray it for them, for the Christians of Egypt. You can pray it for the Christians in Afghanistan, for the Christians in Iraq, Christians in Syria, facing a very big problem today. Although Assad is the dictator, he has, he has given the Christians a great deal of freedom. And they face a very, very difficult situation. And the danger is that, 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 that our political leaders are oblivious to that. And the decisions, what has happened in Iraq, for example, has, has virtually destroyed a Christian church of half a million people. And this was done in the name of, 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 of nations which traditionally say they're Christian. It's a very, very uh, alarming situation. Now, we need to pray. We need to pray in for that situation. And God has given us in, 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 in these psalms um, prayers that we can pray. Of course, we can and ought to pray extemporary. But God has given us prayers. Sometimes we don't know how to pray in different situations. Well, God has given us these prayers there, like here in Psalm 20. And so we are challenged by this psalm. We're challenged in verse 5 to lift up our banners in the name of the Lord. And perhaps that's an appropriate point in which to end our meditation upon this psalm, that we might lift up our banners and that we may acknowledge out there, not simply in here, but out there, that we may acknowledge Jesus Christ to be our Lord, that we might not be ashamed, that we would lift up our banners and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it is as we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord that God will honor our witness. One of the reasons, I suspect, why the churches in the West are diminishing is that Christians have lost the desire to witness. Now, you go to China, you'll find that most Christians will witness, even although it's technically forbidden by law. The last time I was in China, I was walking down a street in Shanghai, 
with uh, my interpreter, and we noticed a shop with biblical scenes, pictures, paintings with biblical scenes. And my friend, who's Chinese, said, I've never seen this in China before. We went into the shop and discovered that the owner of the shop was a Christian. She said, this is how I witness. I get an artist to paint pictures from the Gospels. People come in and ask me, what do they mean? And I witness to them, and I tell them. There's that desire to witness. And you find that in Latin America, you find it in Africa, you find it wherever the church of Jesus Christ is growing. Now, what we've done here in the West is we say it's the minister's job to preach the gospel. Well, that is true, but it's also your job. We are all called to be witnesses. And it is as we will rediscover that and lift up our banners that the church, by the grace of God, will grow again in our land. Now, God can do it. But God wants to do it through you and through me. God wants to use us, just as he's using people in China and in Africa and in Latin America today. So let us lift up our banners and let us give God thanks that this psalm was dedicated not only to David, but dedicated to us. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.